Amen. All right, we're there in Hebrews chapter number 8. And of course, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through a study in the book of Hebrews, a verse-by-verse study in the book of Hebrews. And tonight, we find ourselves here in Hebrews chapter number 8. And uh, the good thing about this chapter, a uh, couple of good things. First of all, it's, it's a short chapter. It's only 13 verses. And it's also a summary chapter, which means that it summarizes the things that we've already been seeing up to this point. Uh, You'll notice there in verse number one, the Bible says this, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the, the sum. This is what the writer of Hebrews, how the chapter begins, he says, of the things that which we have spoken, this is the sum. And the sum there is referring to a summary. Of course, a summary is a brief statement of the main points, and I say that that's good uh, for this reason. This this helps us tonight, since you've planned a potluck uh, for tonight, then hopefully we can move quickly uh, through the chapter because of the fact that it's short, it's only 13 verses, and it's really just summarizing things that we've already been talking about. And I want you to notice that the the summary really, I would say the, the summary verse is in verse number six. I want you to look at verse one just so you get the context. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. The context, of course, and what we've been talking about through the book of Hebrews is about the Lord Jesus Christ as a high priest. He is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. I want you to notice verse 6 kind of summarizes the entire chapter. Verse 6 summarizes the things before verse 6, and it summarizes the things after verse 6. And there's really two points to the summary, and you'll find them both in verse number 6. Notice what he says. But now hath he obtained, and the he there is referring to our high priest. We have, remember, an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty uh, in heavens. And here in verse 6 we are told, But now hath he, the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, obtained... And here's the summary. Number one, a more excellent ministry by whom, uh, excuse me, by how much also he is, and here's the next summary statement, the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. And I want you to just notice just real quickly there that the summarizing statements that the writer of Hebrews is giving us here and kind of bringing everything together that we've been talking about is this, that Jesus, who is our high priest, Uh, is the high priest with a better ministry. He is a high priest with a better ministry, and he is the mediator of a better covenant. He is a high priest with a better ministry, and he is a mediator with a better covenant. Those are the two summary statements, and I give them to you up front uh, just so you can have those, and then we'll see that in this chapter quickly. And if you're taking notes, and I always encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write some things down And you can jot this down if you'd like. Number one, Jesus, the high priest of a better ministry. Jesus, the high priest of a better ministry. And I want you to notice that the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus, the ministry of Jesus as a high priest, was better than the ministry of any other earthly high priest. Now, the reason for that and the the reason as to why his ministry is better is because of the fact that he is having a heavenly ministry 
or a heavenly model. Notice there again in verse 1, we see that he is a heavenly high priest. Look at verse 1 again. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Notice these words, in the heavens, in the heavens. Now the contrast that we are seeing here is that he is contrasted to the earthly high priest. If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, just real quickly, look at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says this, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not of the very image of the thing, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. I want you to notice that there's a contrast between the heavenly high priest and the earthly high priest. Here we see that in Hebrews 10.1 that the law was a shadow of good things to come. We'll see that again here in a minute. And not the very image of the thing which can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. I want you to notice that the earthly high priest, the Bible tells us, was busy. They were constantly working. They offered sacrifices year by year. There in verse 1, I want you to see the word continually. But the Bible tells us about Jesus, who has a better ministry, if you go back to Hebrews 8 and verse 1, that he is set, last part of verse 1, on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The idea is that Jesus has sat down on the right hand of God the Father. And the reason for that is because his ministry and his sacrifices are not offered year by year continually because he has a better ministry. His ministry is over. He said on the cross, it is finished. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant is finished. It's done. And when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, he sat down because it was done. Keep your place there in Hebrews 8. Go to Ephesians if you would. Ephesians chapter number 1. In the New Testament, of course, towards the beginning of the New Testament, you have the book of Ephesians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20. I'd like you to notice this verse. The Bible says, Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, in the heavenly places. So we see that Jesus is a high priest with a better ministry because of the fact that he is a heavenly high priest. He is set in heavenly places. Now I'd like you to keep your place right there in Ephesians. We're going to come right back to it and go back to Hebrews chapter 8 and look at verse number 2. Not only do we see in this chapter that Jesus is a heavenly high priest, but I want you to notice that we also, and he also has a heavenly tabernacle. Look at verse 2. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 2. The Bible says this, a minister of the sanctuary. The word sanctuary is used throughout the Bible uh, interchangeably. We're going to see it in this verse with the, with the word tabernacle. It's the tabernacle that Moses made where they would do the sacrifices, where they would meet with God. Hebrews 8 verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary. Notice what he says, and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. So the Bible tells us here that Jesus is not only a high priest who's in heaven, but he has a sanctuary, which is the true tabernacle. And what makes the sanctuary of Jesus different than the sanctuary of Moses is that the sanctuary of Moses was pitched by man. But the one of Jesus was pitched by the Lord. The Lord pitched, meaning that the Lord set it up, the Lord put it up, the Lord built it. 
and not a man. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that in heaven, there is a tabernacle in heaven that was given there and that was seen there uh, that, that, that is in heaven and was used as a pattern for the one on earth. So we have Jesus as a heavenly high priest. We have the heavenly tabernacle. And then, of course, I want you to notice there in verse 3, we have a heavenly sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 3, the Bible says, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, whereof it is of necessity that this man have someone also to offer. So every high priest, why are they a priest? Because they offer sacrifices. Well, of course, Jesus himself also has to offer something as a high priest, but his sacrifice is a better sacrifice, and it's a heavenly sacrifice. If you kept your place in Ephesians, go back to Ephesians 5 and look at verse number 2. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 2, notice what the Bible says. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Notice the Bible says here that Jesus hath given himself for us. He not only was the one who offered the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God uh, who was slain uh, for our sins. So he hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice of God. So in verses 1, 2, and 3, we see the heavenly model. We see why it is that Jesus has, is a high priest with a better ministry. Why? Because he's a heavenly high priest. He has a heavenly tabernacle. He has a heavenly sacrifice. Now, contrast that to the earthly shadow. Go back to Hebrews 8, if you would. Look at verse 4. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 4, the Bible says this. For if he were on earth, notice that the view changes. We go from talking about Jesus being set in the heavens as opposed to someone who is on earth. Verse 4, for if we were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. I want you to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying here when he says, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. And at the writing, at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, there was an operational temple with a functional priesthood. There was a temple still in Jerusalem. The, the, the temple had not yet been destroyed. And there was a temple that was functioning with priests that were working in it, sacrifices that were being done. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He says, look, if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So he's, because he, he just got done explaining, hey, there's a heavenly sanctuary with a heavenly high priest and a heavenly sacrifice. He says, but I understand that here on earth there, is, uh, there are priests as well. He says, if he were on earth, he should not be a priest because, he says, seeing that there are priests. He said, I understand there are priests. Uh, today, and the, this is the writer of Hebrews writing in the first century, there's a temple that is still functionable. There is a priesthood that is still working. But he brings this up to say, I want you to understand where this came from. Look at verse 5. Who serve, the current priest at that time, unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see... Uh, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee 
in the mount. Now, I want you to notice that the writer of Hebrews here is bringing up something that's actually brought up over and over again in the Old Testament, and it is this, that the earthly system, the priesthood system, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, all of that was patterned after something that came before it, right? The order of Melchizedek came before the order of, uh, of the Levites, and the sanctuary was actually already in heaven. You're there in Hebrews 8. Keep your place there. Go with me to Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26, the second book in the Bible. Should be fairly easy to find. Exodus chapter 26, and we'll try to do this as quickly as we can. Exodus 26 and verse 30. I want you to notice what the Bible says here. Exodus 26 and verse 30, and thou shalt rear up the tabernacle. And there's lots of verses we can look at on this subject, but I'll just show you this one. And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. The Bible here is telling us that when Moses went up to the mount and he spent 40 days with God and he came down, of course, with the Ten Commandments and with this plan. He came down with this idea that they were to build a tabernacle. We're actually going to talk about that on Sunday morning uh, on the Lord's Day but when, when he came down, the Bible tells us that God actually showed him the tabernacle in heaven, that he saw a vision of the tabernacle in heaven, and he was told to rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. So he was given a vision, and he patterned uh, the tabernacle here on earth based off that tabernacle. Go, go, go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Now, you might ask yourself, or you might think, you know, well, that's interesting, but what's the importance of that? The importance of understanding that the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priesthood, it was all patterned after that which Moses gave us, that, what we see in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. All of that was patterned after something that was showed to, uh, to Moses in heaven, it's important for us to understand that all these things were given as a pattern or a shadow of something that already existed in heaven. Oftentimes, as I was growing up in, in, a, in a Christian home and in church, I would often ask myself, what was even the point of the Old Testament? And I didn't say that in, with a bad attitude or, or any sort of way, other than just curiosity. You know, I would often think to myself, why, why even have... The sacrifices? Why even have the tabernacle? Why even have the priesthood system? Why have an old covenant that had to be replaced with a new covenant? Why, why didn't we just start or why didn't God just begin the whole thing with the Lord Jesus Christ and, 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 and all of that? But the answer to the question is this, and, and the way I've heard it explained, which I think maybe would help you to understand it or maybe it'll just help me to understand it, is that the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we're talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and we're talking about the covenants, although you can definitely put the historical time frames of what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament into that as well. You have to think of it as a play uh, with two different acts, two different parts. And both acts stand on their own, but yet are connected. If you were to watch a play and you sat through Act 1, but you did not go through act two, 
then the play would be unfinished. You would get to the end of Act 1, but you would not be able to say that the story concluded, that you understood how it all ended, because there was another act that you missed if you were to get uh, miss Act 1, if you were late to, to the theater and you only sat in for Act 2, then there might be some things that you are missing, some background and storylines that you do not understand because in a play that has one and two acts, these, though they stand separately, are connected to each other. You need them both. You need the second act to conclude the first act, and you need the first act to understand the nuances of the storyline in the second act. This is what the Old and New Covenant is like. If we would have started with the Lord Jesus Christ, if there was no Mosaic law, no nation of Israel, no uh, none of that, then it would have been extremely confusing for us if we would have just began with the Lord Jesus Christ being born on earth, and then all of a sudden there's a man named John, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, and there would have been no context for us to understand, well, what does that mean? There would have been no context for us to understand, what, what does atonement mean? What does the fact that uh, we need a sacrifice and that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin? See, all of these things were needed in heaven because here's what we know. In heaven, for all of eternity, whether we understand it or not, there's a mercy seat in heaven. There's a, a, a high priest in heaven uh, of the order of Melchizedek. There was a blood atonement that had to be done for the salvation of our souls, and all of that had to be done that way in heaven. But in order for us to understand the heavenly, because look, Jesus, the Bible says that he came in the fullness of the books. The Bible says that all the prophets gave witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the point of the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. But if we would have just began with Jesus, and we would have skipped Act 1 then there would have been no understanding as to why do we need a high priest? Why do we need a sacrifice? Why does it have to be shedding of blood? Why does it have to be a sprinkling of, uh, on the mercy seat? Why do all, th all these things need to be explained or uh, need to be done? None of that would have made sense, but Act 1 was God portraying and was God exemplifying for us, look, here's physically what needs to be done in heaven. There's a tabernacle. There's a priest. There's holiness. There's sin. There's atonement. There's a sacrifice. These things need to be done. Act 1 lays the context for Act 2. Act 1 says, hey, this is all foreshadows and examples of that which is to come. And then when it comes, it all makes sense. That's why he gave us an Old Testament. That's why he gave us a Levitical priesthood. That's why he gave us these things. So it's important for us to understand when he says, look, these are all foreshadows of the heavenly. The earthly high priest helps us to understand the heavenly high priest. The earthly tabernacle helps us to understand the heavenly tabernacle. The earthly sacrifice helps us to understand the eternal sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see, number one, that Jesus was a high priest with a better ministry. And then I'd like to notice, secondly, this evening that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Notice that there in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. Hebrews 8 and verse number 6, the Bible says this, but now have, hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. We talked about that. By how much also he is the mediator 
of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Why don't you notice the Bible says here that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises. If you flip back to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 22, Hebrews 7, 22, the Bible says this, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. All throughout the Bible, and specifically the book of Hebrews, we're told that the new covenant is a better covenant. The new testament is a better testament established upon better uh, better, uh, promises. Now, what the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain, and remember, he's writing to first century Jewish believers, explaining to them the purpose of the old, the purpose of the new, how we translate from the old into the new, and how these correlate. And he begins by explaining that Jesus is the mediator. Not only is he a prime priest of a better ministry than the ministry of the Old Testament, but he is the mediator of a better covenant than the covenant of the Old Testament. And he begins by explaining this. The problem with the old covenant required a new. Notice there verse number 7. Hebrews 8 and verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless. He said, if that first covenant didn't have problems, then should no place have been sought for the second. He said, the fact that we needed a second act tells us that nothing was completed in the first act. The fact that we needed a second covenant tells us that there was something wrong with the old covenant. If that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for uh, the second. Now, let me just say this. Look at verse 8, because I, I want to be clear about this. The problem with the old covenant, the problem with the fault in the old covenant was not in the covenant. Notice verse 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, I want you to understand something. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8, starting from the word behold, in fact, if you don't mind writing in your Bible or if you're in the habit of marking in your Bible, I would encourage you right at the word behold to put quotation marks. Because from Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8, right at that word, behold, for finding fault with them, he saith, behold, begins a quotation from the book of Jeremiah. And it's actually a pretty lengthy quotation. It goes from the word, behold, in verse number 8, all the way down to the end of verse number 12. All of that is a quote from uh, the old, uh, from from the book of Jeremiah. And I'm not going to take the time to, to go through it because just for sake of time and there's food afterwards and all of that. We're going to go through all the verses here in Hebrews chapter 8, but just for your notes, uh, it's quoting Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Hebrews chapter 8, in the middle of verse 8, down to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12, is a New Testament quote from the Old Testament passage of Jeremiah 31, 31 through Jeremiah 31, uh, 34. And like I said, I won't have you turn there uh, just for sake of time, but I want you to be aware that that is a, a quote. But go back to verse 8. We're going to walk through. We won't look at it in Jeremiah. You can do that on your own if you'd like. 
but we'll look at it here in Hebrews. Notice what he says in Hebrews 8 and verse 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, that's a reference to the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, in the days when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Of course, we know that Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, and on Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with the children of Israel, and that's what he's referring to. Look at the last part of verse 9, though. Because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Why don't you notice that the problem with the old covenant was not the covenant, it was the people. The problem was not the system. The problem was the people who were not keeping the system. That's why he says there at the beginning of verse 8, for finding fault with them, and at the end of verse 9, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. So we see that there was a problem with the old covenant. The problem with the old covenant required a new covenant. If there was no fault found with the old covenant, then there would have been no need for a new covenant. It's a logical argument being made here by the writer of Hebrews. And then he says, but please understand that the problem with the old covenant was not with the covenant, but it was with the people finding fault with them because they continued not in my covenant. And here's what you need to understand. It's funny, my wife and I were just talking about this this afternoon about something else, and I'll maybe preach a sermon about it at some point. But it's interesting to me that God's plan works. God's system works. The way that God has designed for us to live our lives, it all works. And when we see it fall apart, it does not fall apart because God was flawed in his planning or thinking or in, in the way that he's instructed us, it falls apart because of us. Because we mess it up. So there was no problem with the old covenant. The problem was with the people for finding fault with them because they continued not in my covenant. And let me just say this. If things aren't working in your life, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. Sinful man's fault. So we see that there was a problem with the old covenant. And then he talks about the benefit of the new covenant. And we're still in this quote from Jeremiah. So just keep it in mind that he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah. But notice what he says here in verse number 10, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. This is brought up throughout the book of Hebrews. Look at it. It's brought up in chapter 10. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16. Hebrews 10 to 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. So notice that the Bible says here one of the benefits of the new covenant is that he says that he will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. That's a benefit of the new covenant. And then he says this, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. So what is the benefit? What is this referring to? And what it is referring to, it is referring to the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The fact that in the New Testament, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. So God says, I will put my laws into their mind 
and write them in their hearts. Let's just run a couple of cross-references real quickly. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you go backwards from Ephesians, you kept your place in Ephesians, you go backwards, you go past Galatians into 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and let me just show you this, because in Hebrews 8, 10, the last part of verse 10, he says, I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 15. And what conquered hath Christ with Belial, or what part had he that believeth with an infidel? And of course, he's been talking about that since a few verses, but we won't look at that for sake of time. Verse 16, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Notice what he says, for ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So Hebrews 8.10 says, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Hebrews 8.10 is quoting Jeremiah 31. 2 Corinthians 6.16, I will be their God and they shall be my people is quoting Jeremiah 31. 2 Corinthians 6.16 tells us that the context of that is, ye are the temple of the living God. That you and I are the temple in the New Testament. I think we talked about this last week. In the Old Testament, they had a temple. In the New Testament, you are a temple. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was a corporate system. It was God's system given to an entire nation where the nation had a temple. The nation had a priesthood. But the New Testament is not a corporate covenant, but a personal covenant. You are the temple and you are the priest. And you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you, which is what he's referring to when he says one of the benefits of the new... Because remember, what are we talking about? Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. What makes it better? What makes it better is that in the new covenant, he has written, he has put his laws into our minds and he has written them in our hearts. How has he done that? Through the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look at Hebrews 8 and verse 11. He says this, And they shall not teach every man his neighbor. Now this is not saying that you shouldn't have somebody teach you, or you don't need to have a pastor. This is not a statement against anybody teaching you the Word of God. But what he's saying here is, They shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. This is within the context of having the Holy Spirit of God indwell the temple of the believer. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. The benefits of the new covenant are that you have the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, and the benefit of the new covenant is that the Holy Ghost that indwells you will teach you the Word of God. In the old covenant, they had, the priests had to teach, the people did not have access to God. The only access they had to God was through the Levitical priesthood. But here we're told that in the new covenant, they shall not teach every man his neighbor or have need to teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Let's look at a verse. 1 John chapter 2. Just real quickly, if you go backwards from Revelation, you have Jude, then 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse number 27. 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. Notice what the Bible says here. 1 John 2, 27. But the anointing, the word anointing here or anoint means 
is referring to the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to develop that. You can study that out on your own. But all throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit is equated to oil. And oil is what you use for anointing. You would anoint someone with oil. The oil would be poured upon them. The Bible talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon individuals. This is what's being spoken of here. 1 John 2.27. But the anointing which ye have received of him, notice this, abideth in you, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. The Bible says that because you and I, as New Testament believers, we have the Holy Spirit of God, ye need not that any man teach you. Now again, this is not saying don't let anybody teach you. It's not a statement against someone teaching you, but what it's saying is that you don't need someone to teach you. Access to God is not limited to a spiritual leadership or spiritual priesthood. Access to God is given to every individual through the Holy Spirit of God. And the truth is this, that God has given us, the book of Ephesians says that God has given you pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Obviously, God gave you a pastor to teach you the word of God and to help you go further faster. But the truth is this, there's nothing that I preach behind this pulpit that you could not learn on your own with the Holy Spirit of God and a King James Bible. Amen. You have access to the same knowledge of wealth. And look, all throughout history, religions have tried to keep people's knowledge at bay, have tried to make it so that people could not understand. That's why they had services in Latin when nobody spoke Latin. Because they wanted to keep the knowledge. What do we do here? We tell you, hey, read nine chapters a day. Amen. Read the word of God. Now the truth is this, that we all may be, and obviously we all are in different stages of Christian maturity and understanding. I understand that. We're all in different levels, and I'm going to understand things from the Word of God that maybe you don't see just because of the fact that I've been doing it longer, I've been reading it longer, I've been studying it longer. We understand that. We're all at different levels of maturity and understanding, but the truth is this, that we all have access to the same biblical knowledge because we all have the same Holy Spirit and we all have the same Word of God. And that is a benefit of the new covenant. It's not saying you shouldn't have somebody teach you, but the truth is this. Ye have need that no man teach you. Ye need not that any man teach you. If you found yourself stranded on an island somewhere with a King James Bible, you could study the Word of God and, and learn it and understand it and have everything you need just with your Bible and the Holy Spirit. Ye need not that any man teach you, but that the same anointing teacheth you of all things. Oftentimes when it gets around your birthday or whatever, people will ask questions like, what would you like? What would you like for your birthday? And it's nice and it's kind, and I understand why people ask it, and it's a, it's a nice gesture. Every year, though, I, I think to myself, and, and, and please understand, I'm not trying to be up here ultra-spiritual or whatever. I, you know, I feel like I have everything I need. I, I, I don't, there, there, there's really not, and I know some of you don't live this way, but I, I can honestly tell you there, there's nothing in my heart that I think, if I only had this, I would be happy. You know, I've got, I've got everything I need. And, 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 and I praise the Lord for it. And what I often think to myself when people, and look, I understand, people are kind and gifts and all that. That's, that's very nice. 
But oftentimes when people ask me the question, I don't say this, but when people ask me the question, what would you like, what would you like? I think to myself, what I want can't be purchased with money. It, it, it can't be picked up at a store. You know, what I want is for my wife to be happy. What I want is for my children to live for God. But I'll say, as a pastor, what I want is for you to know the Lord. It's for you to have a genuine walk with God. It's for you to have happy marriages. For you to live with God and walk with God. What, what I want is for you to know the Lord. And the truth is this, that because you and I are privileged to live in the New Testament, we all can. We have access to the Holy Spirit of God, and we have access to the Word of God. So what are you doing with it? You can't buy the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God is everywhere. You need not that any man teach you. Because you have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. So use it. Go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Look at verse number 12. He's talking about the benefits of the new covenant. Notice what he says. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Praise the Lord for that. Salvation. Then he ends by saying this in verse 13. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old. He says the fact that he brought a new covenant, it automatically made the first covenant the old covenant. He says, in that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old, now that which decayeth, and waxeth, the word wax means to grow old, notice these words, is ready to vanish away. Now remember, at the, at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, there was still an operational temple. There was still a functional priesthood. It will be gone in a matter of decades. We know, history tells us that 70 A.D., the Roman Empire comes in, destroys the temple, and gets rid of the priesthood, and it's, it's never came back since. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, the new covenant makes the old covenant go away. He says, it's ready to vanish away. That's what the writer of Hebrews said in the first century. I'm here to tell you, in the 21st century, it's done, vanished away. It's gone. The old covenant is gone. Why? Because Jesus is the high priest of a better ministry. And he is the mediator of a better covenant. What's interesting to me is that Christians today, so-called Christians today, you have people who say they claim the name of Christ, but yet they won't let that old covenant go. You know, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Messianic Jews, the Hebrew Roots Movement, the black Hebrew Israelites, the Seventh-day Baptists, they need to understand that, look, they need to get a hold of this verse. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. They want to emphasize the old covenant, but here's the truth. The old covenant was just the first act. 
It's not the end of the story. It was just the first part of the story to help us understand the second act, the climax, the conclusion, because it's always been about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to just understand these things and understand these truths. Lord, I pray that you would continue to help our church and bless our church. Lord, I pray you'd help us to take access of the benefits of the New Testament. We can know God. We can walk with Him and talk with Him. We can be like Enoch who walked with God, like Noah who walked with God. Help us to take advantage of it, Lord. Help us not waste the opportunity we have. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. I just, again, want to say thank you to all of you who uh, participated with the potluck and the different things. It's very kind of you.